Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Wednesday, November 9th, 2022, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with today's top stories. A judge suspends New York gun restrictions. The Oath Keepers founder denies ordering the Capitol breach. The U.S. announces seizure of over $3 billion from a Bitcoin heist. U.S. and Russia officials confirm high-level talks about Ukraine. Pakistan tells the climate summit that they're a victim of climate change deserving reparations. Algeria applies for BRICS membership. NVIDIA slows down a processor for the Chinese market to meet U.S. controls. The U.N. begins hearings on alleged Israeli human rights abuses. Greece will ban spyware amid a phone tapping scandal. And U.S. voters head to the polls. In our top story, a U.S. judge suspends New York gun restrictions. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Newsbud, Democrat and Chronicle, Wall Street Journal, Washington Times, and Reload. On Monday, New York federal judge Glenn Sudeby temporarily suspended features of the state's newest gun restrictions, allowing six gun advocates to continue their lawsuit challenging the law's constitutionality. Judge Sotheby suspended the parts of the Concealed Carry Improvement Act, which took effect on September 1st, mandating that gun license applicants demonstrate good moral character and disclose both the handles of their social media accounts and the contact details of those with whom they live. He also scaled back the legislation's list of sensitive locations where it's prohibited to carry a gun. The same judge issued a similar ruling in October. However, it was appealed by the state and hasn't taken effect. Judge Sotheby stated that many aspects of the law, initially passed in June after the Supreme Court struck down the state's proper cause provision to carry publicly, placed an unconstitutional burden on gun rights. This follows a separate judge's ruling last week that also temporarily halted the state from restricting the carrying of firearms in places of worship, arguing that it was a detriment to a pastor's right to self-defense. In response, a spokesperson for the Office of Attorney General Letitia James said, We are reviewing and considering our options. Okay, on this program, we separate the spin from the facts. Those were the facts, and here are the narrative spins, beginning with the Democratic narrative brought to us by Brady United. This dangerous ruling undermines modest and common-sense gun restrictions in New York. The newly passed prevention measures are intended to keep communities safe. Sotheby's misinterpretation of the law ignores the realities of the threat of gun violence in New York today. And we counter that with a Republican narrative coming from Washington Examiner. This is a win for liberty and a loss for tyranny. Left-wing policies attempting to disarm state citizens are only escalating the dangers every day New Yorkers face during a surge in crime. Gun sales increased because of crime, not the other way around. And the sooner we understand this and tackle the underlying cause of violence, the safer America will be. And from time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narratives as provided by the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there's a 50% chance there will be 1.38 small firearms per capita by the year 2029. Want to help us improve the news? Go to www.improvethenews.org pod and take our quick survey and tell us what you think. And now, back to the news. Our next story, the Oath Keepers founder denies ordering the Capitol breach. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by Wall Street Journal, Reuters, NBC News, USA Today, and CBS News. Oath Keepers founder Stuart Rhodes on Monday testified in his seditious conspiracy trial, 
a charge that holds a 20-year maximum prison sentence. He claimed that he never ordered members to enter the U.S. Capitol during the January 6th riots, saying it was stupid for those who did so. Rhodes and four other Oath Keepers members, Thomas Caldwell, Kenneth Harrelson, Kelly Meggs, and Jessica Watkins, faced charges of organizing an effort to violently prevent the certification of the 2020 election and stockpiling weapons at a nearby hotel. Rhodes, who supported former President Trump's election denial in 2020, testified that he didn't want Oath Keepers to get involved in all the nonsense with the Trump supporters around the Capitol. Prosecutors who were trying to hold Rhodes responsible for the Oath Keepers' alleged attack on the building asked him if, as a leader, the buck stops with him. He replied, not when they do something off-mission, I'm not in charge. The government closed its questioning of Rhodes by asking him if he had regrets, to which he responded that he was upset that law enforcement officers were harmed and that anybody who actually did assault a police officer should be prosecuted. Rhodes' testimony began last Friday when he challenged prosecutors' description of the Oath Keepers' motives on January 6th, their depiction as racists, and the idea that the election was stolen, clarifying his opinion that he thinks it was invalid. Scott, thank you for the facts of that story. And NewsBud is starting us off with a series of spins, and this one is a pro-Trump narrative. It would have made no sense for Rhodes to order the Oath Keepers to enter the Capitol. After all, he had warned them to avoid the type of attention that would get them persecuted by their political enemies. They were in D.C. to simply protect a few very important persons. But a couple of rogue members went into the Capitol of their own volition. We've also got a Democratic narrative from CNN. Considering prosecutors have been able to use his texts against him, it's absurd that Rhodes is trying to avoid responsibility for what the Oath Keepers did on January 6th. In those messages, he referred to bringing rifles if Trump wouldn't call on the military, targeting high-profile officials, and authorizing a quick reaction force that was positioned at a nearby hotel. And there is a nerd narrative for this story. It says there's a 50% chance that 16 or more people will be charged by the United States Department of Justice with seditious conspiracy in connection with the January 6th Capitol riots. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction community. In our next story, the U.S. announces seizure of $3.36 billion in stolen Bitcoin. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Justice, TechCrunch, Reuters, CNBC, and Axios. The U.S. Department of Justice on Monday announced a historic seizure of Bitcoin stolen nearly a decade ago from the Silk Road dark web marketplace, along with the conviction of the man responsible for the theft. According to the announcement, authorities raided James Zong's house in Georgia last year and seized over 50,000 Bitcoin, worth more than 3.36 billion U.S. dollars at the time, that was hidden in an underground floor safe and in a circuit board concealed in the bottom of a popcorn tin. Zong pleaded guilty last Friday to one count of wire fraud, which carries a maximum sentence of 20 years, for tricking the Silk Road's processing system into releasing the funds to his accounts in 2012, when he was 22 years old. His sentencing is scheduled for February of 2023. Silk Road Marketplace was a dark web forum where illegal and illicit products were bought and sold with cryptocurrency. It was launched in 2011, but the FBI shut it down two years later. The platform's founder is now serving a life sentence in prison. At the time, this Bitcoin recovery was the largest cryptocurrency seizure in DOJ history. 
However, the Bitcoin has plummeted in value since it was recovered, and as of November 2022, it's worth a little over a billion dollars, making it the second largest seizure. We've got two diametrically opposed narratives on this story, starting with the pro-establishment narrative from Wired. This record seizure and the arrest of Zong are indications of the progress being made by U.S. authorities in the fight against cybercrime, particularly in the recovery of illicitly gained cryptocurrency. This case is yet another notch in the belt for IRS criminal investigations, which continue to find multi-billion dollar troves of stolen cryptocurrencies and disrupt dark web markets. And the establishment critical narrative for this story is courtesy of New York Times. Why did it take authorities almost a decade to track down such a large sum of stolen currency? If this money had been hard cash, the FBI would have put significantly more effort into tracking down Zong and recovering the stolen funds. It's certainly a success that the Bitcoin was finally recovered, but the time that it took to achieve indicates alarming gaps in the FBI's approach to fighting cybercrime. We've got another nerd narrative from Metaculus. This one says there's an 8% chance that at least one person will be convicted for the possession of Bitcoin in the U.S. before the year 2060. Eric, I don't <laughs> think I have the temperament for being a, uh, a criminal, cyber or otherwise. Just, just hearing this story made me nervous. I, I, if I had a billion dollars in Bitcoin hidden in my basement, I, I would lose my mind. Well, you probably wouldn't hide it under a popcorn tin, that's for sure. <laughs> I, I, I would, you know, those, um, those Italian cookies that came in that blue, <laughs> yeah. that blue tin. Yes. Th those, first of all, those are really good. They are. And, uh, that's where I would hide them. Oh, but, okay. Uh, yeah. Hey, I'll be over this yeah. weekend. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Great. Yeah. We got to, <laughs> well, I got to count the Bitcoin. <laughs> a report from the tech world says that Meta is preparing large scale layoffs. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by The Washington Examiner, Wall Street Journal, and Voice of America. Following a second straight quarter of revenue loss and a 70% loss in stock value on the year, Facebook parent company Meta is reportedly planning to lay off thousands of employees in what's expected to be the largest mass layoffs to hit the tech sector. Meta reported 87,000 employees in September, having hired a combined 27,000 in 2020, and 2021 due to the pandemic-induced shift to online life, and another more than 15,000 so far this year. With slowed economic growth and rising interest rates forcing digital advertisers to cut back and making it more expensive to borrow, CEO Mark Zuckerberg said Meta will focus investments on a small number of high-priority growth areas, while other teams will stay flat or shrink over the next year. The company's free cash flow declined to 98% in the last quarter due to investments in its Reels, a short-form video platform on Instagram, and its Reality Labs, the division responsible for creating VR headsets and the metaverse. With the mass layoffs reportedly beginning as soon as Wednesday, the move would be the first major staff reduction in the company's 18-year history. The news comes after several more targeted cuts last month in which employees were managed out or saw their roles eliminated. While on a percentage basis, it likely won't be close to Twitter's recent approximate 50% staff cut, Meta's upcoming layoffs could be the largest overall staff reduction of any tech company this year. Those were the facts, and we have a few spins to talk about, beginning with a pro-establishment narrative coming from Business Insider. This is the unfortunate reality for the tech industry when the economy takes a downturn. With inflation and interest rates up, investment and revenue are down, which means companies need to cut off some of the excess expenses, like employees. To keep investors happy, 
Both startups and massive platforms like Meta need to ensure they hit certain market goals. And Quartz brings us an establishment-critical narrative. Meta's financial problems aren't only from inflation, but also the $9 billion already lost due to Zuckerberg's obsession with VR goggles and the metaverse. The irony is that while looking to mass-fire employees throughout the company, Zuckerberg doesn't seem to be reining in his metaverse ambitions. Only time will tell, but these layoffs won't do much good if no one wants to join Meta's virtual world. And a nerd narrative says there's a 23% chance that Meta will report 1 billion active users by the end of 2031. That's according to the Metaculous Prediction community. Do you have a pair of Every, VR goggles? I don't. There is a, uh, a Batman game I've been wanting to play. I have no interest in the metaverse, but I'll check out Gotham City. And in tech news, NVIDIA offers a processor for the Chinese market that meets U.S. controls. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Computing, TechCrunch, and SCMP. U.S.-based computer chip manufacturer NVIDIA Corporation confirmed on Monday that it's offering a new advanced graphic processing unit for the Chinese market that satisfies export controls imposed by the U.S. government in October. The confirmation follows a report by Reuters that Chinese companies were advertising their latest products with NVIDIA's new A800 graphics processing unit, or GPU. In August, NVIDIA and Advanced Micro Devices Incorporated, or AMD, were informed that various advanced chips they manufacture were placed on the U.S. export control list. This includes NVIDIA's A100, which its A800 was designed to replace. The new chip has been deliberately designed to function at reduced speeds in order to comply with the performance threshold set by the U.S. ban while carrying out other core computing capabilities. A800 runs at 400 gigabytes per second, while A100 operates at 600 gigabytes per second. This is reportedly the first attempt by a major U.S. chipmaker to work around U.S. export sanctions, since the U.S. Commerce Department directed NVIDIA and AMD to stop exporting their most sophisticated chips to Beijing, claiming they could be used in artificial intelligence systems. NVIDIA is walking a thin line between commercial interests and complying with Washington's strategic containment of China, as the country accounts for about one quarter of the company's gross sales and Q3 losses were estimated at $400 million. Thanks for those tech facts, Eric. We have an establishment critical narrative on this story from Counterpunch. U.S. sanctions are designed to contain China as a rival economic power, but they may well end up backfiring due to the interconnected nature of the global economy. This aggressive global peer competition may even end up triggering a war that would likely envelop many other countries. At best, sanctions will merely postpone China's rise as a peer military and economic power, but not prevent its emergence. And Atlantic gives us a pro-establishment narrative. Beijing is to blame for the shift in U.S. policy. As Xi Jinping has called for a world-class military to tip East Asia's balance of power in China's favor and seeks to become technologically self-sufficient, it would be foolish for him not to expect the U.S. to use its leverage to try and counter these attempts. And now our daily roundup of the fighting in Ukraine as we reach day 258 of the conflict, where U.S. and Russia officials confirm high-level talks and Zelensky restates his conditions for peace. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by MSN, Ukraine Forum, Pravda, the official website of President Zelensky, and Commerçant. 
Amid reports that U.S. and Russia officials have restarted high-level talks in recent weeks, White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said on Monday that the U.S. has channels to communicate with the Russian Federation at senior levels. He didn't say whether he'd been directly engaged in the dialogue. Sullivan continued, We have done so when it's been necessary to clarify potential misunderstandings and try to reduce risk and reduce the possibility of catastrophe, like the potential use of nuclear weapons. Despite his reticence, a source confirmed to Reuters he was involved in the talks. Meanwhile, according to the Russian publication Kommersant, three sources have confirmed that talks are underway between the two nations. The sources said that both governments have worked to arrange the first face-to-face discussions since the war started over the last remaining nuclear arms control agreement between Russia and the U.S., the New Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty, or New START. Elsewhere, following reports that the U.S. has quietly encouraged Ukraine to soften their stance on negotiations, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky reiterated his conditions for talks on Monday. He said, Once again, restoration of territorial integrity, respect for the UN Charter, compensation for all damages caused by the war, punishment of every war criminal, and guarantees that this will not happen again. These are completely understandable conditions. Zelensky previously stated that he wouldn't hold talks as long as Putin was in power, a position repeated by his senior presidential advisor, Mikhailo Podolyak, on Monday. Ukraine has never refused to negotiate. Our negotiating position is known and open. First, the Russian Federation withdraws troops from Ukraine. After, everything else. Is Putin ready? Obviously not. Therefore, we are constructive in our assessment. We will talk to the next leader of Russia. On the ground, as Kherson continues to brace for what will likely be a major battle, Russian strikes were recorded in Nipopetrovsk and Zaporizhia, with no reports of civilian casualties at this stage. Heavy fighting continued in Donetsk, where Ukrainian officials said three civilians were killed and seven more were injured in Russian attacks. Pro-Russia officials from the Donetsk People's Republic, or DPR, reported that one civilian was killed and six others injured in Ukrainian attacks. Elsewhere, Ukrainian Defense Minister Olesky Reznikov thanked Norway, Spain, and the United States after he confirmed receipt of two advanced missile defense systems from the countries. Reznikov said of the development, These weapons will significantly strengthen the Ukrainian army and will make our skies safer. Scott, thank you for the facts of that story. We look at the spins now, beginning with Narrative A, coming from Bulwark. If Ukraine autonomously decides to seek negotiations, Such talks should come from a position of strength. Now is not the right time to meet with Putin, particularly as negotiations could deflate Ukrainian morale ahead of a major offensive. Politico chimes in with narrative B. A sober analysis shows that Ukraine is unlikely to drive Russian troops from all of its territory, and the longer this war goes on, the worse it will get for Ukraine. The Biden administration has a duty to try to bring about a peaceful resolution to the war, as extending the conflict will only increase the chances of a hot war between Russia, the U.S., and NATO. And the nerd narrative says that there is a 2% chance that Putin and Zelensky will meet to discuss the peaceful resolution of the Russian-Ukrainian conflict before 2023. And that comes from the Metaculous Prediction community. Kind of zooming out on a uh, strategic level on this conflict, the, the way I see it, 
If it had been over really, really fast, it would have been Russia rolling over Ukraine. And then there's a period where Ukraine has resisted. But I don't think that that would last indefinitely. I think the longer this war drags out over some time period, you'll see Russia kind of chipping back in and Ukraine wearing down just due to size. Pakistan regarded as a victim of climate change and calls for reparations. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Newsbud, Reuters, The Washington Post, Dawn, Independent, and BBC News. At the COP27 summit, Pakistan's Prime Minister Shabazz Sharif stated on Tuesday that the devastating floods that may have hit his country were a man-made disaster, underscoring that Pakistan is a victim of climate change despite its low-carbon footprint. He also urged high-income countries to compensate poorer, vulnerable nations affected by climate change, adding that damages and losses caused by floods in Pakistan now stand at over $30 billion. This comes a day after UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres appealed to international financial institutions and the G20 countries to help provide debt relief for middle-income countries affected by natural disasters. Though developing countries and small island states have called for loss and damage reparations since 1991, this is the first time UN climate negotiations have included such a request in a summit's agenda. According to COP27 President Sameh Shukri, such an inclusion reflects a sense of solidarity for the victims of climate disasters. A conclusive decision is expected no later than 2024. Pakistan's Natural Disaster Management Authority reports that at least 1,700 people were killed and 2 million homes demolished this summer amid historical flooding reportedly intensified by human-caused climate change. Scientists also blame rising temperatures for natural disasters in Brazil, China, and Egypt this year. Three spins emerging from this story, Scott, beginning with Narrative A, and it's being provided by Nature. Though the poorest countries are responsible for only 1.1% of global CO2 emissions, they're the ones most affected by climate change, which has hit them with great destruction due to their inability to adapt quickly enough to respond to disasters. High-income nations have a moral imperative to fund climate disaster support and help stabilize the most vulnerable economies. DW counters with Narrative B. There's no question that rich countries must take action to find solutions to the climate change problem that they've largely caused. But creating a specific fund for loss and damage reparations might prove troublesome. This new structure would make them liable to pay for any damage provoked by natural disasters in developing countries, climate change related or not. A nerd narrative says there's a 50% chance that the total damage incurred by climate change during the 21st century will be 8.84% of world GDP, according to the Metaculous Prediction community. In our next story, Algeria officially applies for BRICS membership. And here are the facts, as agreed upon by MSN, Middle East Monitor, France 24, Newsweek, Times Live, and Economic Times. Algeria on Monday submitted a formal bid to join the BRICS bloc of emerging economies comprising of Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, a move aimed at diversifying the country's trade relations. The application was praised by Beijing and Moscow. The request was reportedly confirmed by the Algerian Foreign Ministry official Leila Zarouki, who argued that the North African country has completed all required measures to join the economic alliance. This comes after Algeria's President Abdelmajid Taboun hinted earlier that the country was interested in joining the bloc, claiming that the group is an economic and political force. BRICS currently accounts for roughly a quarter of the world's gross domestic product. 
Taboon criticized the marginalization of developing countries within the various institutions of global governance at the June BRICS Plus Summit, stressing the need to create a new international order to achieve greater international stability and prosperity. BRICS expansion will be discussed at the 2023 summit in South Africa. A number of countries, including Saudi Arabia, are reportedly expressing their desire to be a part of the alliance. Meanwhile, the BRICS countries are reportedly brainstorming a common financial infrastructure, which would include a new reserve currency based on a, quote, basket of currencies of the member countries in order to reduce dependency on the dollar and the euro. Thanks for those facts, Eric. We have an establishment critical narrative from Global Times. The fact that Algeria, Africa's largest gas exporter, now also wants to join BRICS underscores the alliance's increasing economic significance and the Algerian government's foresight. In times of increasing economic uncertainty and a rules-based world order serving Western interests alone, BRICS catalyzes a multipolar order through increasing economic integration among the countries of the global south. And Boston Globe gives us a pro-establishment narrative. BRICS has so far failed to live up to the high expectations of emancipation from the Western-dominated world order. It's unlikely that Algeria or Saudi Arabia joining the bloc will change the marginal role BRICS has so far played in world politics for now. Too diverse are the political and economic systems, and too small is the intersection of common values. The Ukraine war and China's dominance are also causing friction, but the West still must keep an eye on this group. Greece to ban spyware amid phone-tapping scandal. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by Reuters, New York Times, DW, Daily Sabah, and Al Jazeera. The Greek government is set to ban the sale of all spyware in the country amid an ongoing scandal over alleged phone tapping. Greece's Prime Minister, Kyriakos Mitsotakis, has repeatedly denied claims that he's behind any illicit surveillance, but the government has confessed to legal wiretapping practices. On Monday, Mitsotakis said, We will be the first country to tackle this problem and enact legislation that will explicitly ban the sale of such software in our country. He also stated all countries have the same problem. The news first made headlines in July this year when it was discovered that Greek politician and MEP Nikos Andrulakis had been targeted with a mobile spyware called Predator. A report from left-wing newspaper Documento also detailed the wiretapping of more than 30 people, including ministers and business people. Former Prime Minister and leader of Greece's far-left Syriza party, Alexis Tsipras, has called for the government to respond to the affair before the next general election, set to take place in 2023. Greece's Supreme Court has ordered an investigation which has further prompted the EU to examine the sale and use of spyware. Although Mitsotakis acknowledged in early August that Androlakis was wiretapped by Greece's National Intelligence Service, or EYP, he denied knowing about the operation. However, other allegations have centered around the EYP, and on August 4th, the then head of the agency testified that it had spied on financial journalist Thanasis Koukakis, who resigned afterward. Despite admitting to the use of some spyware programs, the Greek government claims that its operations were approved by a prosecutor. There has been no explanation as to why Androlakis was targeted. Scott, thank you for the facts of that story, and we have three spins to shed some light on, beginning with a pro-establishment narrative coming from ecathamarini.com. There's no evidence to substantiate these politically motivated allegations, and nothing at all to connect them with the Prime Minister. It's a poor reflection on the state of Greek politics that professional extortionists 
are accusing the leader of the country of illicit surveillance of his own ministers. And Politico counters with the establishment critical narrative. Mitsotakis's refusal to address these allegations head-on is casting a cloud over the future of Greek democracy. For events like these to potentially have been ordered by government leaders is undemocratic and illegal. Furthermore, the failure of Greek media to adequately cover this scandal is disgraceful. These allegations demand resolution through independent inquiry and the prime minister himself. And lastly for this story, there is a cynical narrative coming from Newsbud. Even if Greece resolves this issue domestically, the problem of spyware and illicit surveillance is prevalent throughout Europe. Many countries, including the UK, France, Poland, Spain, and Hungary, have all been shaken by similar controversies. Although a ban of the sale of spyware would be a positive step, it would be far from the end of the story. In our next story, the UN begins hearings on alleged Israeli human rights abuses. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Reuters, Voice of America, WIO News, and Today Online. A UN Independent Commission of Inquiry, COI, on Monday began five days of public hearings in Geneva regarding alleged human rights violations against Palestinians. Day one concentrated on Israel's banning of multiple Palestinian rights organizations in 2021. The commission, established by the Human Rights Council, says it will be impartial and will examine allegations from both Israelis and Palestinians, though Israel dismissed the process as a sham trial. The U.S. has also accused the U.N. of having a, quote, chronic bias against Israel. Three of the six Palestinian NGOs that Israel had deemed terrorist organizations testified on Monday. One of them, Al-Haq, claims to simply be a defender of human rights, with its general director, Shawan Jabarin, accusing Israel of conducting a smear campaign to silence it. The hearing will also focus on the shooting of Palestinian-American journalist Shireen Abu Akleh in May, with the UN saying it found her to likely have been deliberately killed by Israeli forces, while Israel maintains that she was likely shot accidentally. The three-member commission was founded after the 11-day Gaza conflict in May of 2021, in which 250 Palestinians and 13 people in Israel were killed. It also seeks to uncover the root causes of the conflict. Neither the hearings nor the council has legal enforcement powers, though such investigations are occasionally used for evidence in national and international courts. Unsurprisingly, we have two very diametrically opposed narratives on this story. Al-Mayadeen brings us the pro-Palestine narrative. While the Israeli occupiers have and will continue to label these hearings as a sham, history and the UN's past investigations highlight Israel's long record of killing and criminalizing Palestinians. Israel's opposition to such hearings is also absurd, given that the commission has no power to punish it for its crimes against Palestinians. Jerusalem Post gives us a pro-Israel spin. Israel appears in UN condemnation reports exponentially more often than the words Palestine, Hamas, Islamic Jihad, and Iran combined. Despite the reality that those groups continue their terror campaigns against Israel and the free world, the UN has decided to waste time and resources to hold another kangaroo court. We have another nerd narrative from Metaculus. This one says there's a 50% chance that Israel will recognize Palestine by November of 2065. Our final story, it's Election Day in the United States, keeping in mind that at press time the results had yet to come in, 
So for the latest election results, please visit improvethenews.org. Here are the facts on this story as agreed upon by Fox News, Al Jazeera, Wall Street Journal, 538, NewsBud, and Business Insider. With all 435 seats in the House, one-third of the Senate, and 36 out of 50 state governor's offices up for grabs, President Biden predicts Democrats will surprise the living devil out of a lot of people, while Republicans aim to take back majorities in the House and Senate and gain key new governorships as voters headed to the polls on Tuesday. According to the University of Florida's U.S. Elections Project, more than 41 million votes had been cast prior to Election Day, either through mail-in ballots or early in-person polls. A Gallup poll also found that 54% of Democrats said they would be voting early compared with 32% of Republicans. Meanwhile, the early exit poll data shows that abortion policy and inflation are the top issues driving voters to the polls. Though every House seat is in contention, the nonpartisan Cook Political Report says that only about 36 races are a toss-up. Analysts at the publication said anything from a very narrow GOP majority to a Republican rout of more than 30 seats is well within the realm of possibility. Regarding the Senate, polling analytics website 538 gives Republicans a 59% chance of winning a majority. The site says the toss-up Senate races to watch are in Georgia, Nevada, Arizona, and New Hampshire. Gubernatorial races in states Biden flipped blue in 2020 are also on the radar, including Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Arizona, and Georgia. Pennsylvania, where Biden grew up, and the upper Midwest are thought to be crucial for the 2024 presidential campaign. There were issues with some voting machines as Election Day began, namely in Maricopa County, Arizona, where 20% of polling stations reported tabulator malfunctions. However, officials said voters at those precincts can go to another location, drop their ballot in a physical secure drop box, or wait for the machines to come back online, and that operations are going well. And two spins emerging from this political story, Scott, beginning with a Republican narrative coming from Town Hall. Election Day is a day when every American can use their vote to send a message to those in power. The message Americans will send is that they will still care about the Bill of Rights, freedom, and overall common sense, especially crime and inflation. An inevitable red wave will make the woke left despondent when the midterm results pour in. And New York Times brings us home with this democratic narrative. The future of American democracy is truly on the line in this election, and there's nothing wrong with framing it this way. MAGA Republicans have talked openly about what they'll do if they get back the majority, including stripping away voting, reproductive, and economic rights. Voting for Democrats means voting for democracy and sustaining hard-fought gains. For the latest on the U.S. midterm elections, visit our website, improvethenews.org. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Wednesday, November 9th, 2022. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. You can find more information on Improve the News at our website, improvethenews.org. Download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News. Improve the News.